0: Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our Sermon Cast for Holman Park Baptist Church. Have you ever seen it when they draw their family? You know, it's it's kind of funny. It's rarely a a masterpiece of realistic proportions. Um, over the years, I've received drawings from children that depicted me preaching and Donna singing, and I've even got pictures of bunny rabbits. Uh, some of them I still keep, but... The reason I do that is because they are precious. When a child draws a picture, maybe they're trying to, um, to uh, keep their attention, or maybe they just really want to give somebody they love uh, a creation. But many of you have received pictures of your children, and they say, Look, Mommy, I drew our family, or look, Mommy, I drew our, you know, our dog, or whatever. And usually they're what? Stick figures. And they're all over the place, and they have arms that defy physics, and legs that look like they're broken, and and a dog that looks like a blob with two sticks on the bottom of it, and the house is lopsided. But the thing is about those pictures that children draw is that it's not about how accurate it is. It's about what they are portraying. It's not about how realistic it is. It represents the relationships as they understand them, Right? The joy of being together and being able to draw a family. And even though their depictions are not going to become Picassos, they are still beautiful. And the reason I think that they're beautiful, and maybe you'll agree with me, is that these children, when they draw these pictures, that is them expressing love for those that they draw in the best way they know how to. And maybe that's only drawing stick figures. But there's no doubt that when your child brings home a picture that says, look, I drew this for you, mommy. I drew this for our family. I drew I drew a picture of my dog. Whatever they came home with and what they, they drew, I want you to understand, and you know this already, is that they're talking about and they are describing their relationships and they're describing how much they love you. Well, and that, my friends, is precisely what God has done with us. Many of you maybe have started a Bible reading plan and you started out with Genesis this year. And in Genesis we read, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image and in our likeness. So just as a child captures their love for their family in a drawing of crayon and pencils, God in his infinite wisdom has created you and he has created you to to reflect his divine nature. Whether you're tall, short, fat, old, young, whatever it may be, whether your skin is red, yellow, brown, black, or white, it's not about how we look as much as it is about the God that we represent. But just like a children's drawing, our reflection of God can sometimes become tarnished. You see, sin crept into the world, and Sin can smudge and destroy even the best of all creations. But you know what? That's okay. God had a remedy for that too through His Son, Jesus Christ. So over the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at a series called Lessons from the Garden. Things that we can learn from the Garden of Eden. Things that we can learn from Genesis and those passages around that. And so our first one today is that you were made in the image of God. And you were created in the image of God. At the image of God, the key word there, being created. If you brought a copy of God's word, join me in reading chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I'm reading out of the, the New Living Translation, and it says, Then God said, then God said, let us make human beings in our image. It's easy to read past that without catching something there. We'll talk about it in a minute. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I think as, as I look at this passage, the first thing that struck me is that the very first part of this verse, it says, then God said, then God said this is this saying alone proves and and magnifies the fact that God is sovereign. He is in control over everything because God, unlike everything else, God is not a created being. He simply is the world we live in, the people who inhabit the earth, the nature, the laws of of." Of seasons and weather and all of these things. All of these things were put into place by God by simply speaking them into existence. If you don't believe me, go back and read the first part of Genesis just by His Word. Notice it says in verse 1, it says there was nothing then God said. Let's remember that there are a lot of things in this world that you can, you can make a priority in your life, but if you want to make the the creator of the world your priority. And if you want to have a relationship with the the being that created everything, then my friends, just as it says here in Genesis, our relationship should be with God. Then he says here, he says, let us make humans like us. Let us make humans like us. Now, So I want you to understand is that when God says this, he's talking to somebody. And so he's talking to Jesus and he's talking to the Holy Spirit. So here's the aha moment I want you to understand. We all know it because we're in church, Jesus died for our sins, right? But that also means that Jesus was in on our creation. Yes, Jesus was with God when the Word was created. Jesus was with God when you were created, And he loves you so much. He was there in your creation and he wanted to do what his father asked him to do so that you could have a relationship with God. So very in the beginning, we see, let us make humans like us. Us and our indicate all three were involved in our creation. Folks, you were not created to be a God for yourself. Or put other people as your God. You were created by God to have a relationship with God. Just like a father has a relationship with a child. All of these precious children that have gone to children's church in the nursery and they are, they are back there and they all, the thing that, that not only are they so awesome and so cute and so loving, but they represent the families that brought them here. There are relationships. There are connections. And the thing is, is that if we ever put anything else in the center of our life other than God, the Bible calls that an idol. And I like the way the Tony Evans Bible says, he says, just as God handed over responsibility to the sun so that it would shine for God, God handed over the responsibility to us, meaning you and I, so that we would govern and steward his world for him. Yes, it says here, God created us in his image. Imago Dei is what that means. And in the most basic sense, having the image or likeness of God means that we are to be similar to God. They say that, and I don't know if this is the case, those of you that have had children can tell me, but the, the old wives' tale is, is that when a baby is born, they, they come into this world looking like their father, and over time they begin looking like their mother. Is that true? No one's going to give me any feedback on that one, huh? <laughs> well, I hope it looks like a Mama. But anyway, the thing is, is that when you see that baby in, in, in this creation that God has blessed you with, as a father, you see a little bit of yourself in that child. As a mother, you see a little bit of yourself in that child. Maybe you see a little bit of your other relatives, your fathers, your mothers, your grandfathers. There's there's some type of discerning factor that you say, look, they've got my grandfather's eyes or they've got my... my um, grandmother's cheek or whatever. I mean, you know, you've been there, you've done that, and still are doing that. And as they grow older, they grow into that. We're created in the image of God, my friends. So are people saying to me and saying to you, you know what, I see God in you. You have got God's temperament. You have got God's love. You have got God's wisdom. You have got whatever you've got You are reflecting what God has given you. And that's what he's trying to get us to see because we are God's image bearers in need of Jesus. Yes, although we still bear the image of God, as it says in James 3.9, we also bear the scars of sin. Mentally, morally, socially, and physically, we show the effects of sin. But here's the thing. Here we go now, and we're going to go here because the Bible lays it out, and so we're just going to, uh, just like golf, where the ball lands, that's where you play it, right? Well, God established the gender, not man, not wisdom, not, not cultural preferences. When it comes to gender, we see here what it says right here. So God created hum, human beings in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I think last time I heard uh, scientists and experts are saying there's over 21 genders now. Wow. I see two here. And look, this is not going to turn into a bashing message about all these other uh, different topics that are going on. But I just want to teach you and reveal to you what God has shown me. His word says, why is there so much confusion over gender? Why is there so much confusion over gender? Well, it started way back in the garden when sin came into the world. And then it says that, that because of the curse of sin, God put enmity or put distance between the man and the woman. The woman wanted what the man had. And so there was all of this conflict that started as a result of sin. And so here we now, we see that gender and, and all these other issues are, are kind of, Unfolding. Why is that? And this is not an exhaustive list, but one reason is the cultural context. There has been a shift from the Bible being the authoritative word on gender to now it's public opinion and cultural preference. Many think that it was true back when the culture accepted only two genders, but now they say. Culture has evolved. We've become more enlightened. And so now we believe that there are more genders. What you do when you say that is you say that this was this book was good for that time, but it's no good for the way we live right now. And it's not only gender. That's, the way, that's what's happening with everything. So there's cultural context. There's religious fragmentation. What does that mean? Is that even in the church, you're not going to find churches. You're not going to find denominations anymore that are going to agree to the fact that when the God says that he made a male and female, that that's it. There are churches, there are pastors, there are ministries that are that are swallowing this cultural relativism hook, line and sinker. Some, uh, as the concept of biblical authority shrinks, different religious traditions and denominations interpret Genesis 127 in different ways. Some say that Genesis has two distinct roles of man and woman, and they are important for the functioning as one or the other, but gender is not important. So let me give you just the, the, the plain view of or the, speak plainly on what that says. That says that even in the church, there are people that are saying Yes, the roles and what a male and a female does is what God has laid out here, but you don't necessarily have to be a male or female to fill those roles, meaning that um, two males, one could be the male and one could be the female role, not the gender. So again, they're taking God's word and pushing it to the side. And then today many believe that sex exists on the spectrum and gender is an identity is a distinct concept rooted in individual self-perception, blah, 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 blah. What that means is, is people can decide, no matter what biology says, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what the Bible says, they can decide for themselves who they are. You've heard people say, this is the big thing today. Well, I know that this is, you say God's word is the ultimate truth. That's your truth. I have my truth. You heard that one? I have my truth. That's a scary place to stand because if you are disregarding the word of God and the truth of God and you say, you look at all of this and you say, ah, this is cute. My grandmother grew up with this. And I remember when I was in youth group, I used to read all this stuff. And but, you know, the world has changed, preacher. And and uh, what you're saying is just not nice anymore. And you can live by that truth. But I'm going to live by my truth. Well, I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, there's only going to be one truth that's going to stand. It's going to be God's truth. Now, Proverbs 29:18 says this. I'll put it on the screen for you. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. My friends, if you were to look at your news feed, you were to look at your social media, you would look at what's going on in this world, you could see that this verse is playing out perfectly. When people do not accept divine guidance. When people do not accept the word of God, they run wild. And we are running wild. Then there's ethical considerations. Regardless of specific religious or biblical interpretations, some people would say that it's okay if you believe this, but you cannot exclude anybody because they think that they are a different gender than what you believe. So there's in other words, it is unethical for a believer to have the conviction of what God says in His Word to, to be able to, um, I guess you would say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, discriminate. can't discriminate. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, as a believer, we can't discriminate against anybody. And I'm not saying that once, okay, we've got this verse in our belt and we're going to go out and we're going to take over the world. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there's got to be truth. Somebody's got to be right. Is it going to be God or is it going to be you? So how do we respond to gender dysphoria? How do we, how do we as a Christian move on and, and help people with this? Because I'm going to tell you, it is my desire as a pastor that this church would welcome Anybody, no matter what they identify with, no matter what their relationship is, it looks like, no matter what they believe in, and it doesn't mean we have to agree with what they're doing. But we better show them the love of Christ, and we better um, show them the truth, and, and not only just say, "Oh, that's that's what's wrong with you." Well, sit down and let me show you all the verses on why you're wrong. I guarantee you, most people that are in sinful situations, they already know the verses because people have already told them. Sometimes we need to love people. Sometimes we need to listen to people. You see, this is not the point of the sermon where I say God created Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve and move on. That would be very easy to do that. But there are some people, some maybe even in your family, in my family, in our circles that struggle with this issue. It is a real thing, my friends. And I don't have ill will towards anybody that's trying to figure this out. So how do we handle this as a church? How do you handle it as a father, a mother, a grandmother, a grandfather, when one of the relationships, you, you, someone you love comes in and tells you whether they are in middle school, high school, college, or 40 years old, and they say, look, I'm struggling with this. How, How do you, the Bible says this, do you just show them this verse and say, well, there's only two, now get right and get left. That doesn't work. It just drives people further away. The first thing that we can do is we can show compassion. Go back and look at the Bible, friends. When Jesus encountered those that were sick, when he encountered those that were confused, and when he encountered those that were weary and even in sinful actions like the woman at the well, Jesus acted with compassion on them. So must we. Did you know that the rates of depression and anxiety and suicide are alarmingly high among trans youth whose gender identity doesn't align with their biological sex? Don't believe me? You can read about it. The the article is called Eight Things Parents Should Do When Their Kids Want to Transition Their Gender by the Gospel Coalition. If we're going to show compassion, folks, the first thing we need to do is engage them first by listening and respecting their courage to talk about it, whether uh, listen to them talk while encouraging them to say, "Hey, I understand what you're saying. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Thank you for telling me how you got here. Could could you do me a favor? Could would, would you be interested in maybe just inviting Jesus into this conversation? I'm not saying you gotta you gotta go stop or do or what. Just what do you think we can talk about Jesus and this situation?" That's much less controversial. And a lot of times somebody will say, well, you know what, I, I'll do that. Sometimes they won't, but sometimes they will. But just like when you're sharing Christ with somebody, my friends, if you get into an argument, an argument with somebody about religion, your, your bridge is burned, right? You're not going to talk to that person anymore about that stuff. Some of you right now are like, oh, my gosh, preacher, move on. Look, I understand. But the truth of the matter is, I don't want this church to be seen as somebody that's going to burn bridges to people that are hurting. We need to show compassion. And then we need to look past the symptom to the problem. And that goes with any sin, my friend, no matter what sin you are struggling with. Or someone you know is struggling with, it's not. Uh, it's, we shouldn't just look at. Look, this is your problem. This is what the Bible says. Change it and move on. Now, usually, when we are out of control in one area of our life, hear me out, and this is true. Usually, when we are out of control in one area of our life, we are out of control in other areas of our life. You can take that to the bank, my friends. We need to celebrate the beauty and the goodness of God's design. Look, if you're struggling with with your identity, if you're struggling with who you are, just understand that the Bible says, God says, God proved it. We are here. We are proof of creation because we are here. God looked at you and he said, I'm going to create you in the image of me. Yes, society may not value the way you look. You may not value the way you look. But when God looks at you, he says, now that is perfect. And for someone to take it upon themselves to determine something that they are apart from God, they have just said, God, you got it wrong. I know better than you. That's dangerous ground to be on. Psalm 119, 13 and 14 says, for you created my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb, and I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. If nobody's told you this today, whether you're on this side, in the middle, or on the left, or watching by way of our Facebook feed, let me just tell you something. God awesomely created you. You are Awesome. God loves you. And if you're looking for for approval, and if you're looking for uh, acceptance from anything else, you might feel like you have to earn it. But with God, you don't have to earn His acceptance because He's already created you in His image, and He loves you. And if if I, you know, I've got a few more things to say, but if we could really just stop the message here, God loves you. He made you perfectly. He rejoices in you. God doesn't make junk. And whatever you feel like you're not enough or you're missing out on or you have these other needs, instead of running from God, maybe the best thing you can do is go to him to meet those needs. We see here also in in the second half of 26, in verses 28 through 30, that God blesses and gives purpose to reign over his creation as his image bearers. He says, they will reign over the fish and seas. All y'all like to go fishing? It's biblical, right here, right? The birds in the sky, the livestock, and the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. In verse 28, then Jesus blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and all the animals will scurry along the ground. Then God said, look. I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruits for your food, and I have given you green plants as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along on the ground. Everything has life, and that is what happened. Do you remember a time when you went from being a dependent child to actually being able to help around the house? I remember when I was younger and my dad would actually... Let me. He'd sit me on his lap, and he'd cut the he'd cut the yard, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I'd ride the lawnmower with my dad. Did y'all ever ride the lawnmower with your dad? I know some of you do that now with your kids. The kids just laughing. They love it because they are on the lawnmower with the dad. And then the one day when the dad says, "You know what? I'm tired of cutting the grass. You're going to start it." Yeah. All of a sudden, you've got all this responsibility. You've got that mean machine. You You're controlling that machine, whether you're pushing it. Or driving it, but now you are in control, right? Well, sometimes that means now that we take the responsibility of cutting that grass. You realize that God didn't just create us just to hang out. God gave us purpose, and he says that here. But we are to to work the creation that he gave us. He gave us dominion over it, folks. We need to be good stewards of our earth. You know, these things about, I'm not going to, you know, littering. Uh, resources and all of these things. I'm not, we we could go crazy on trying to say that the Bible says that we need to um, be tree huggers and, and all these other special interest groups. Look, I'm not saying that that we have to, to go all in on something, but I am saying this, that you cannot be a believer and say, I'm not worried about pollution. I'm not worried about the ozone. I'm not worried about what God created us here, and he put us here to tend his garden. And then finally, as an image bearer, your value was found in God. Look at verse 31. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. As I said earlier, God doesn't make junk. The world we live in tries to devalue God and all that he, all that he has created. You realize that, Right? Why do we have the horrible things that are happening in this world? It's because as as society and as culture devalues the Word of God, we are thereby devaluing ourselves. Don't look at yourself as less than. Don't think that you are missing something. God has created you and given you everything you need to have a vibrant relationship with. With him and those that he's put in your path. You may be here this morning and you feel unworthy of God's love. Or you may feel unworthy to be loved by anybody else. That is a lie, straight from the pit of hell. Why is that? Because your worth is not determined by what you do for others or how others treat you. Or does it lie? in the belief, what you believe about yourself. Your value is given to you by God, the very hands that created you. Let me tell you this quick story and we'll be done. Maybe you've heard of the, the story, the poem, whatever you want to call it, the, the story of the master's hand. And it's about a violin written by Myra Brooks Welch. It says, "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it's scarcely worth his while to waste so much time on the old violin." But held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks? He cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar. How about two dollars? Who will make it three? Three dollars once. Three dollars twice. Going for three. But no. From the room far back, a gray-haired old gentleman came forward. And he picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from this old violin that he couldn't get three dollars for. He tightened and tuned the strings and this older man picked up this violin and he started playing that violin. It was the most beautiful melody they had ever heard. Once the music stopped, the auctioneer with a loud voice said, what am I bidding for this old violin? He held up the bow and he held it up. He said, how about a thousand dollars? Who will make it two? How about two thousand dollars? Who will make it three? The people cheered, but some of them cried. We don't understand what changed its worth. And swiftly came the reply, the touch of the master's hands. Many a man with a life out of tune, battered and scarred with sin, is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd. Much like this old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice and going almost gone. But the Master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the Master's hand. I'm telling you, before I met Christ, I wouldn't have given you a nickel for myself. And probably everybody else wouldn't have given you a nickel for me either. But when the Master's hands touched me, I found my value. When the Master's hand touched you, you found value. You found somebody that could, God could, could work in your life in the way that you were designed. And all of a sudden, you're not this worthless thing anymore, but God has given you His purpose and His love. How much more value do you have as God's proclaimed best creation? God made you for a reason. You are part of God's creation. And He is pleased with how He made you, regardless of where you are right now, my friends. You are valuable to Him. And don't let Satan in this world tell you that you're not enough or that God made a mistake. You were created by God. You bear His image and He loves you. God created you and God wants to redeem you. If we do not portray God in the way we live our life, how will the world know him? Folks, no matter where you are in life and in your relationship with God, I want you to know that you are his image bearer. From the highest of ivory towers to the lowest of prison cells, all humans can be made and are made in his image. And the fact that we are made in his image means that God cares for you matter of fact, Isaiah 49, 16 says, See, I have written your name on the palm of my hands. You think God has forgotten you? You think that you've wandered too far from God? You think that you can't make it back to Him? My friends, your name is already inscribed on the palm of His hands. If God is far from you in your life today, He is not the One that has moved. And if you have moved far from God understand that He's calling you back to Him because He created you, He loves you, and you are made in His image. He created you to love you and for you to know that you need Him. God created you. God redeemed you and His desire is for you to be with Him again like Adam and Eve. And He loved you so much. He loved you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cruel cross for you so that your sins could be forgiven and the Creator could once again be at one with His creation. Don't you think, isn't it crazy that, that maybe when we do get to heaven that we're going to be running around and God's going to say, oh, Donna, I remember when I made you. Remember when I did this for you? Or, Luella, remember when I created you? That was awesome. James, you remember when I created you? He's going to know every one of us because He created us and He created you.